0: I'll be reading from the book of Ecclesiastes this morning, chapter 5, verse 8, through chapter 6, verse 9. If you're following along in the Pew Bibles, that's on page 555. If you see in Provence the oppression of the poor and the violation of justice and righteousness, do not be amazed at the matter for the high official is watched by a higher, and there are yet higher ones over them. But this is gain for a land in every way, a king committed to cultivated fields. He who loves money will not be satisfied with money, nor he who loves wealth with his income. This also is vanity. When goods increase, they increase who eat them. And what advantage has their owner but to see them with his eyes? Sweet is the sleep of a laborer, whether he eats little or much, but the full stomach of the rich will not let him sleep. There's a grievous evil that I have seen under the sun. Riches were kept by their owner to his hurt, and those riches were lost in a bad venture. And he is father of a son, but he has nothing in his hand. As he came from his mother's womb, he shall go again, naked as he came, and shall take nothing for his toil that may that he may carry away in his hand. This also is a grievous evil. Just as he came, so shall he go. And what gain is there to him who toils for the wind? Moreover, all his days he eats in darkness, in much vexation and sickness and anger. Behold, what I have seen to be good and fitting is to eat and drink and find enjoyment in all the toil with which one toils under the sun, the few days of his life that God has given him for this is his lot. Everyone also to whom God has given wealth and possessions and power to enjoy them and to accept his lot and rejoice in his toil, this is the gift of God. For he will not much remember the days of his life because God keeps him occupied with joy in his heart. There's an evil that I've seen under the sun and it lies heavy on mankind. A man to whom God gives wealth, possessions and honor So that he lacks nothing of all that he desires, yet God does not give him power to enjoy them, but a stranger enjoys them. This is vanity. It's a grievous evil. If a man fathers a hundred children and lives many years so that the days of his years are many, but his soul is not satisfied with life's good things, he has also no burial. And I say that a stillborn child is better off than he For it comes in vanity and goes in darkness, and in darkness its name is covered. Moreover, it has not seen the sun or known anything, yet it finds rest rather than he. Even though he should live a thousand years twice over, yet enjoy no good, do not all go to the one place. All the toil of man is for his mouth, yet his appetite is not satisfied. For what advantage has the sight of the eyes than the wandering of the appetite? This also is vanity and a striving after wind. This is the word of the Lord.
1: Thanks, Dan. Good morning, church. My name is Josh. I'm one of the pastors here. Uh, If we haven't had the chance to meet, let's change that. We'd love to connect with you afterwards. It would be a joy to meet with you and hear a little bit. My wife and I were first married. We started watching this show called Monk. Did you guys ever watch Monk? We loved Monk. Monk had... uh, I don't want to be triggering this morning, but he had OCD to like the nth degree. And one thing Mr. Monk would never do is start a brand new sermon series on the fifth Sunday of a month. It just would not work for him, and it doesn't work for me. So we wrapped Ruth last week. We will jump into Summer in the Psalms next week, but this week uh, I thought I'd hit on something that is probably affecting all of us right now. The reality uh, of what all this inflation is doing to our personal finances right now was coming sharply into focus for my family uh, this last week. It felt, it felt pretty grim uh, to us as we really analyzed the numbers and saw where we're at. Um, and so we talked about areas where we could trim back and tighten the belt a little bit, provide a little bit more breathing room in the budget. Didn't find too many options, but um, I imagine it's a similar story for all of us right now. We're trying to figure out what to do with this new Uh, financial norm, and hopefully it's not a norm, hopefully it's just a season. Um, So for just this week, I want to talk about money, since all of us seem to have a little bit less of it, okay? Uh, Maybe your savings is taking a hit, maybe you're watching your 401k do this number right here, Uh, maybe you can't afford some of the simple things that you used to be able to afford pretty easily, like a gallon of milk seven or eight bucks now i don't know what your story is but i'm betting that during this season all of us are having to reckon with our relationship to money in in one way or another but before we talk about money i want to tell you a story about my childhood i kid you not i was mowing the lawn before i was three years old Uh, I, i would look out the window of my bedroom i would see my father out there on his riding mower make a beeline to the garage to snag my push mower to head out there to uh, help him, right? Help. Now, you've got to understand that my dad's grass cutting was a bit more productive than my own as a a two-and-a-half-year-old. Go figure. But my dad's lawnmower blew out grass as he mowed. Not the case with mine. Mine blew out bubbles. See, (laughs) I had the Fisher-Price bubble-blowing mega mower. Um, but I didn't know this. I had no idea that his was far more productive. His work was far more productive than mine. He was the one doing the actual cutting, right? The actual work. It was his work that provided the satisfaction that came with the grass that was cut with those evenly, really straight lines through the lawn. So if we're honest with ourselves, if I was honest with myself as a two-and- a-half-year-old, uh, what I was doing was absolutely and definitively useless. It was in vain, right? Uh, If grass output was the measuring stick, I was working in vain. I was mowing, but it was my dad who was cutting the grass, right? Well, our our text today, uh, as with much of Ecclesiastes, if you're familiar with this book, is designed to force us to ask ourselves this question on a day-to-day basis that actually matters. How can I cut grass and not just blow bubbles in all of the ordinary moments of my life? All of this meaningless and vanity talk is prevalent throughout this book of Ecclesiastes. And in our passage this morning, it's designed to force us to ask the question, well, then what is permanent? What will last? How can I stop blowing bubbles in the wind? How can I find true meaning in this life? Whether you work in the office or work at home or you're a child or retired. By the way, kids, really glad that you're in here this morning with us. If you would like... Find one of the pictures in this passage uh, that is uh, talked about here in Ecclesiastes 5 and 6 um, and draw it. I would love to see it afterwards. If you, if you want to do this, take up the challenge and draw one of these images that, that pops out to you here in this text, I would love to see it. So if you do that, come up and show me afterwards. Maybe we can have a judging contest to see who is best, and you'll probably all be the best. Um, the author of Ecclesiastes has some thoughts about how we can find true meaning in our lives. So let's get after it. Uh, if you're not already there, turn to Ecclesiastes chapter 5. You know, in Western culture, we love, but this is not how the book of Ecclesiastes is written. It's not how Hebrew poetry and literature is often structured. And it's certainly not structured that way for our, time, for our text together this morning. So we are going to nerd out for a second together, okay? Put your nerd glasses on. Come with me. Without taking a moment to learn a little bit of the structure behind our passage today, we may assume, and maybe you assumed this while Dan was reading for us, you may have assumed that the author is just like aimless, aimless in what he's writing, aimlessly wandering in and out of the same ideas, repeating himself, and saying the same thing over and over and over and over again. But he's not. There's an actual sort of hidden structure underneath the text there. Our text today is Hebrew poetry. Now, poetry for us in the modern day is based on rhythm and rhyme, but that's not the case for Hebrew poetry. It's built on structure. So let me show you what I mean. I'm going to throw it on screen here. Um, look at how the beginning of our passage, A up there, A5, 8 to 12, mirrors the end. You can see that at A1. Um, it's right next to, next to each other. So we're going uh, left to right, and then left to right, and then left to right. Um, you can check, check me on this in your own Bibles if you want. The two middle sections mirror each other B and B1 and then the idea is at the end of the chapter 5 and the beginning of chapter 6 so the end of 5 is C and then the beginning of chapter 6 is C1 they mirror each other too so the structure that the author is using here is called a chiasm. I told you we were going to nerd out All right, nerd time is almost done but it's called a chiasm. This is Uh, This word is built on the Greek letter key, which actually looks like an X, so that's why it's called a chiasm, and that's the form that this chiasm takes. Uh, A chiasm is a structural device in which the point of the text is highlighted by its separateness, it alone has no parallel, and by its central placement, it's found right in the middle. So I'm only bringing this up because without understanding this, it may seem like the author is aimlessly wandering, but he's not, so check it out here. Kind of spelled it out for you. Uh, It starts with people who cannot be satisfied and then moves to people who cannot enjoy, then to what is good. And then here's the main point, the part that has no equal to it or no parallel to it, D. That's the very center of the X, the center of the chiasm. Uh, And then he moves back to what is bad in contrast to what is good. And then people who cannot enjoy, in contrast to people who cannot enjoy, up at the first B. And then the final A there, people who cannot be satisfied, uh, reflects the top A there, people who cannot be satisfied. Again, if you want to check me, you can in your text. Uh, But a, a pretty cool kind of like bit of hidden knowledge there about what's going on with this text, I think. So Solomon uses this structure to highlight his big idea in this text. You guys know how we like to do big ideas in most of our sermons here. It's like the one central thing that you can take away with you. Hopefully it's really portable and memorable so you can take it with you and forget it on your way out the door. Um, But the goal is to give you something that you can take with you uh, that is short, hopefully pithy, and summarizes the whole text. That's what Solomon is doing here with D that you see there. Enjoy the moment. And so that's what we're going to use to structure our own big idea here today. It's this, Enjoy the life God gives to you, not the life you wish you had. That's what this text is saying. Enjoy the life God gives to you, not the life you wish you had. Which I think is a helpful uh, thing to remember in the midst of massive inflation, right? Enjoy the life God gives to you. He didn't make a mistake having you be born in the season that you were born in and living through the season that you're living through. Specifically here, we're going to talk about money, your money life. And the call here is to enjoy the life of uh, financial provision that God gives to you, not the financial life that you wish you had. So number one here today, don't seek satisfaction in what money can do for you. Don't seek satisfaction. Labor for is taken by others. What you labor for is taken by others. Look down at verse 9, if you will. I'm going to be doing a lot of looking down this morning. Verse 9, the increase from the land is taken by all. The king himself profits from the fields. So the point is, what we labor for Monday to Friday so strenuously is pilfered from our pockets all the way up the social stepladder, up to the highest office in the land. Each level of government is dipping their hands into the next level down, right? You remember your first job? I was a paper boy for the morning call in Allentown. The first time you opened up That paycheck and saw how much taxation there was on every single paycheck you got. I mean, your paycheck might have been like $37, but still more of it was taken than you thought should be as a kid. It's pretty frustrating when you first come to terms with how much the government can take. It can be difficult to swallow. All that work to see 10, 20, sometimes even 30 percent go to someone who didn't actually work for those dollars? Come on. Very simply, Solomon is making the point that it's foolish to love wealth because it's so fleeting. So what you labor for is often taken by others. Next, what you labor for is never enough. I think I've told you guys this before, but at my former workplace, I worked at a software company, we had these people that we called SMEs, Subject Matter Experts, SMEs, and they were like the leading thinker in their field. And so anytime anyone had a question about a particular thing relating to that field, they knew the person to go to. They went to the SME, the subject matter expert. Well, Solomon is a SME in the area of wealth. Do you want to know what it's like to be wealthy? Don't ask me, for sure. Ask Solomon. Unfortunately, the reviews are not as good as we had all hoped. Look at verse 10. Five, verse 10. He who loves money will not be satisfied with money, nor he who loves wealth with his income. But now look, Solomon is no dummy. He knows we'll have a hard time believing him. He expects that lingering suspicion in the back of our minds to keep. That one dude who would actually be satisfied with just a little bit more, right? I don't even need to be rich. I just want a little bit more than I have right now. I promise I'll be satisfied. No, you won't. <laughs> so that's what our SME Solomon wants to say. Not even someone who has it all will fully be satisfied by the riches. John Rockefeller, a famous man in the history of our country, one of the wealthiest men to have ever walked the planet, was once asked, How much money is enough, John? And his answer? Just a little bit more. So do you believe God this morning? Do you believe this "sme" in Solomon? Or are you still persuaded that you are the one exception in all of history? just as an exercise in in analyzing our own hearts in this. Think of that family member or a friend who has just a slightly higher level of living than you do. Maybe there's a friend in here right now in this room that you're thinking of. Their level of living is just like one level up from you. Do you know what that person right now is thinking? They're thinking about a friend or a family who has just a family member who has just a slightly higher level of living than they have right now. And probably thinking that they if they could just have that, then tensions in their marriage would ease up a little. Their life would just simplify a little bit. It'd be easier to just have a car that's more reliable, they say to themselves. They'd be able to give more if they just had more. It's a never ending cycle, and it hits all of us. But if this wasn't enough to convince us, the author reminds us of another reality. What you labor for is often just for looks. Here's the difference between the guy today uh, who drove here in a Beamer, and if you're one of those people who drove here in a Beamer, a BMW, praise God, and I would love a donation. But anyway, um, compare the Beamer guy with the guy that's going to walk out in a few minutes to that 1994 Toyota Corolla. Do you know what the author of Ecclesiastes says that the difference is between those two dudes? You ready? It's this. This is so profound. The guy with the Beamer gets to look at his beamer. That's it. That's his advantage. Look at verse 11. When goods increase, what advantage has their owner but to see them with his eyes? Oh, We all just need to understand that the reward for having riches apart from God is this, seeing your riches. That's it. Next, what you labor for often causes anxiety. Look at verse 12, the second half of it. The full stomach of the rich will not let him sleep. He's got all he wants and needs, but he's anxious, can't sleep. It's hard to sleep when you have a lot to worry about. It is meaningless to love riches, because ironically, loving those riches is so costly physically for you. Now, of course, there are like tons and tons and tons of stories of the poor committing suicide, but the stories of the rich committing suicide are just as prevalent what you labor for, causes anxiety. Next, your labor is never over. Look at verse 7. All the toil of man is for his mouth, yet his appetite is never satisfied. The funny thing about our appetites as human beings is that they're only ever temporarily satisfied. I have... Sat across the table from my brother-in-law, who just happens to be here this weekend. If you know the Bolions, stop by and see them before you get out of here today, Um, visiting from South Carolina because they left us here in Philly. Um, But I have sat across the table from him for many a Thanksgiving meal or like a Christmas meal. Um, And almost without exception, he'll lean back with a contented sigh and say, "Whoa!" And what do you say? I'm never eating again. Is what he says. And then also, almost without exception, he'll follow that up with, so uh, what are we eating for dinner, right? It's kind of funny, but it's actually true for us as human beings. Our sights are constantly set on what's going to satisfy us next. Even if we're really full right now, your stomach may be satisfied temporarily, but a few hours later, you're peeking in the fridge. You're going to want the next new one when it comes out. That car was so amazing when you first got it, but now, ugh, I'm kind of looking forward to something newer. It's, if you're always living for what will satisfy you next, the author in verse 9 calls us a wandering appetite. You will be perpetually frustrated if this is, if this is the way that you're living your life. You'll be drifting, making a meaningless grab and play at life and satisfaction Always trying to find something that will satisfy your hunger for food or play or pleasure. You'll be blowing bubbles, wasting your life. On earth, the author of Ecclesiastes wants you to know that you will never find the silver bullet on earth that will satisfy you with permanence. You will not be the singular exception to this rule in the history of man. Before we move on, though, I want to be careful to point out that wealth does does have its advantages. And the scripture is not blind to these, nor does it denounce the advantages that come with satisfaction in it. Loving money spoils the God-intended goodness of money. Loving it ruins it. We're not designed to give the kind of attention and even worship to money that we give to God. This is what ruins money, yet it's what occupies many of our hearts. So this morning, search your heart on your orientation towards money or wealth or retirement or your portfolio or your 401k or your 403b. Does your heart love it? It cannot satisfy. It will not satisfy. Believe God this morning. The larger your appetite for money, the bigger the hole in your soul will be. Are you so ambitious that it's taking you away from gathering with God's people? Are you so committed to the mighty dollar that you'd be willing to do some shady stuff at work or on your taxes? Just know that in the end it won't work. So don't fall prey to it. It won't satisfy you. As much as you might believe it in your heart right now, it won't, it won't work. That hole is meant to be filled, but not with cash. It's a God-sized hole that can only be filled with God, and bring a contentment that money cannot bring. Don't seek satisfaction in what money can do for you, because it can't satisfy you. Number two today, don't be dissatisfied with the life God gives to you. Solomon provides some reasons why we shouldn't be dissatisfied with the life that God gives to us. First, it's this. Your persistent pursuit of something better is harmful. Chapter 5, verse 13. Look at it with me. He says, there's a the grievous evil that I've seen under the sun riches were kept by their owner to his own hurt so he instead of the previous examples where men were seeking riches to love this man has them already and he's trying to suck pleasure out of them out of all the wrong things and as a result he was willing to endure hardship and sacrifice in order to keep to get and keep his wealth at all costs he was going to maintain his lifestyle and the perception of his wealth that he had gained with others. He was unwilling to just work hard and just accept the life that God had given to him. And he did this to his own harm. He worked his tail off, and he couldn't even enjoy the fruits. Jessie O'Neill has diagnosed a spiritual problem for us. She calls it affluenza, which is an unhealthy relationship with money or the pursuit of wealth. Most Americans have at least a mild case of this deadly disease. Even if we are thankful for what we have, we often think about the things that we do not have and how to get them. This explains the sudden pang of discontent we feel when we realize that we cannot afford something we want to buy, or the guilt we feel because we bought it anyway, and now we're in debt as a result. Our feverish pursuit Of something better than what God has provided causes this deadly affluenza. We're left here in the text, though, wondering what the antidote is. Is there a vaccination for affluenza? Too soon? (laughs) On the vaccination joke? Is there one? We're supposed to wonder this as we read through this text. Another reason we shouldn't be dissatisfied with the life that God has given to us your lifestyle is losable. Your lifestyle is losable. Look at verse 14. Those riches were lost in a bad venture. All that stuff the man had labored to obtain to his own harm, they all went up in smoke anyway. During the pandemic, we bought this super cheap above-ground pool, and we filled it up to like 70% on Wednesday or Thursday of this last week. And the higher it got... Um, the lower one side got and the higher the other side got inside the pool. So we stuck a hose in the pool and we completely emptied the pool and then we went and bought sand and dirt and we re-leveled the ground and now the pool is back in place. I'm happy to tell you it's been refilled and it is now level, but that was a lot of water that went up in smoke. Those riches were lost in a bad venture. I tell you that. Solomon is thumping that drum Don't set your sights. Always be wishing your life away hoping for a better break or a better set of circumstances. Still, though, he hasn't provided us an alternative. He's just like beating this drum of depression into our souls. He's piling on again here. The next point, your stuff is temporary. It will be lost. Either you will dump all the water out or eventually it will evaporate, but it will be lost. Verses 15 and 16. No matter how much you hoard, you're going to lose it all. Look at verse 15. As he came from his mother's womb, he shall go again, naked as he came, and shall take nothing for his toil that he may carry away in his hand. Verse 16, this also is a grievous evil. Just as he came naked, so shall he go naked. And what gain is there to him who toils for the wind? So think of someone who who has it all in your mind. Maybe you like movies. Who, Who what's a famous actor? Don't be bashful. Johnny Depp. Yeah. Somebody's been watching the news. Amber Heard, anybody? All right. Johnny Depp. So you've got his face in your mind, that that pirate. Maybe you like sports. Who's the most famous athlete? Matt Stafford or Josh Allen. We've got Matt Stafford and Josh Allen. Okay, maybe you like music. Who's a famous musician? Tim McGraw. All right. Bruce Springsteen. Um, I thought you guys were going to say Justin or Dalton from this morning, but maybe enjoy business ventures. Who, who knows a famous businessman? Elon Musk. There you go. Yeah. Uh, what, is, what is your perception of these very, very, very elitely wealthy people? Beautiful homes, beautiful cars, Typically beautiful Twitter or on TV, you've seen it all. It looks like they have it all. But it is absolutely guaranteed that they will lose every single ounce of it. No matter how good and great and wonderful they have it now, they will lose it. They're going to exit like they came in. No clothes, no cars, no home. Naked as they came, naked they're going out, just like the rest of us. Like verse 15 says. And no matter how far down the ladder you go from them, the same is going to happen to you. This is frustrating. This is an unshakable reality. Everything that you've worked so hard for under the sun, the way that Ecclesiastes talks about life on this earth, he talks about it in terms of it being under the sun. And the whole point of Ecclesiastes is to get over the sun. What is over the sun? What lasts longer than the stuff under the sun? Everything that you've worked for under the sun in this life, you're going to lose it. And still he piles on. Even if you make it, even if you get all the stuff that life has to offer, your acquisition does not guarantee satisfaction. Your acquisition does not guarantee satisfaction. Look at chapter 6, verse 1. There is an evil that I have seen under the sun, and it lies heavy on mankind. Maybe you're feeling that right now a man to whom God gives wealth, possessions, and honor so that he lacks nothing of all that he desires. Yet God does not give him the power to enjoy them. Remember that Christmas gift that you got as a child? It was probably this amazing electronic toy. Maybe it was like a toy car or a game, a tape recorder, a Game Boy. And it was probably something that required batteries. And what did it say? Batteries not included. It was so demoralizing as a kid, wasn't it? This is one of the singularly most frustrating phrases a 10-year-old can read. You have this amazing toy, and you can't use it. Batteries not included. Well, Solomon warns in chapter 6 that no matter what life we're given, wealthy, poor, or somewhere in between, satisfaction is not guaranteed satisfaction not included. You have this amazing gift called life, yet you cannot guarantee yourself satisfaction. He says next, money won't satisfy. So why do we labor and toil for all this stuff under the sun? What is the point? Solomon wants us to feel desperate and frustrated in a twinge of sadness right now. Like, yeah, all the blood, sweat, and tears that you just poured into your home remodel, you're going to lose it because you can't take it with you. That car that you just bought and you love, you're going to lose it, man. Nobody's even going to remember that in 10 years. We are all abject losers. Be encouraged this morning. We are losers in this sense that we are going to lose everything. So if your life is wrapped up in something that you're sure to lose, you're making a bad choice. If your life is wrapped up in something that you're sure to, sure to lose, you're making a bad choice. So how do we not be losers? Everyone is laid low by this. Every single human being ever. From the wealthiest to the poorest. We're all laid low and we're laid bare by this question. If none of this stuff means anything, if it all goes away, If it's all in vain, what is the point of even living? We're supposed to be asking that question. But you need to know that Solomon is purposefully leaving one piece of this description of the meaningless life. He's he's leaving one piece out, and he's done it purposefully. And it's what we just skipped over. It's that very center of the chiasm of the X. It's the very point of this entire passage, and it's really the entire point of life. So this isn't something we want to miss today. The third and final point and the big idea for us, really, enjoy the life that God gives to you, not the life you wish you had. Enjoy the life God gives to you, not the one you wish you had. So, so far in our time together this morning, we have been relatively godless, and so has Solomon, but there's this avalanche of God-centered joy waiting for us right here at the end of chapter five, an avalanche. This is the solution, the vaccination against affluenza, the key to finding the point of living. Remember, again, this is the very center of the chiasm, the point of the passage. Here it is again on screen, you can see. The very center of it is enjoy the moment, enjoy the life God has given to you. But look back down at your text, and we'll take a, a running start to this. Look at verse 18. Behold, what I have seen to be good and fitting is to eat and drink and find enjoyment in all the toil with which one toils under the sun the few days of his life that God has given him. For this is his lot. Everyone also to whom God has given wealth and possessions and power to enjoy them and to accept his lot and rejoice in his toil. This is the gift of God. For he will not much remember the days of his life because God keeps him occupied with joy in his heart. Here's what Derek Kidner, a commentator, says about this passage. He says, at first. Sight, this passage may look like the mere praise of simplicity and moderation, but in fact, the key word is God. And the secret of life held out to us is openness to him, a readiness to take what comes to us as heaven sent, whether it is toil or wealth or both. Now, this sounds exactly counter to the American dream. Life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. Yes, but... But God, a SME, subject matter expert for all of life, says this, be content with what I've given to you and rejoice in it. If you do this, you'll be preoccupied with joy in your life in a way that isn't preoccupied with joy rather than preoccupied with brevity. Because your highest concern is over the sun and not under the sun. Your life won't be merely bound up In the quality or quantity of your days. That's what verse 20 is pointing to. I played a lot of basketball uh, in my days. uh, And one of the phrases that all of my coaches wanted to pound into our skulls was box out, box out, box out. For a basketball player, boxing out becomes second nature. Now, if you have no idea what boxing out is, let me try to explain it to you real quick. The purpose of boxing out becomes clear when the offensive team has the ball. So they're at their hoop trying to shoot their ball into their hoop. And when the defensive team sees that the ball has been shot by the offensive team, each player on the defending team will turn around and they'll box out. So they're playing defense on this guy. He shoots the shot. They turn around and they box out like this. They're trying to keep this guy from going and getting the rebound. Assuming he's not gonna make the shot, it bounces off the rim. Uh, The guy on defense wants to make sure the guy on offense doesn't go around him to get the ball and put it back up into the hoop. So box out, keep the bad guys away. But it's not only about keeping the bad guys away. It's about positively, I use sports as an analogy and you're leaving, Tim. Done with that? All right. People hate on me for my sports analogies, but it's about all I've got. So that's why I tried to explain to you what boxing out is this morning. Um, So it's not just about keeping the bad guys away from the ball. It's about positively securing the rebound for your team. In the same way, we should fend off empty pursuits that this text has warned us of. But remember, boxing out isn't just keeping the other team from getting the ball. It's not just about keeping those uh, pursuits to just box out. It's not just to keep godless satisfaction at bay because it won't fully and finally satisfy. Solomon is imploring us to box all of this stuff out to keep it away, but it's about far more than that. The full weight, intention, and design of this passage is meant to be compelling you towards something, not just defending yourself from something. We're fighting for our desires to be satisfied in the all-satisfying Jesus Christ. Yes, ward off inappropriate desires for satisfaction and wealth. Yes, totally. But run after Jesus. That's the point. Simply fighting temptation won't satisfy your thirst, but Jesus will. Drink and satisfy your soul with him. Stuff yourself with the pleasures of his word. When your soul is stuffed with Jesus, there'll be no room for this lethal lust for life other than what God has given to you. Here's the crux of what God has called you to. How do we enjoy the life that God has given to us in a meaningful way and not wish for a different kind of life, the life of the guy down the row from us right now? Here it is concisely from verses 18 to 20. Accept your lot. Rejoice in your toil, your job, your work, because it's from God, and it's his gift to you. So will you embrace God's sovereign provision? Work hard and rejoice and rejoice. The kind of man- work. Just rejoicing in what he has. He's got a chair to sit on, a table to eat at. He's not troubled by what he doesn't have, always wanting more. He looks at his job like a blessing from God. With all of its frustrations, of course, and its shortcomings, yes, it's a good thing because it's from the hand of God. I wonder if this is you right now. Do you always have an eye out for what's next? Where's the next big buck gonna come from? How can we jump into the next tax bracket by next year this time? Can't wait to get to the next stage of parenting. You know, the, the easier one, right? C.S. Lewis, yeah, right. C.S. Lewis said this. We've heard this before as a church. He said, it would seem that our Lord finds our desires not too strong but too weak. We are half-hearted creatures fooling about with drink and sex and ambition when infinite joy is offered us like an ignorant child who wants to go on making mud pies in a slum because he cannot imagine what is meant by the offer of a holiday at the sea. We are far too easily pleased. We're so easily pleased. We fill up on the scraps of Netflix or weekend getaways, new stuff, whatever that might be for you. All the while, deeper, more permanent satisfaction is offered in our Lord. Oh, if we just enjoy the life God gives to us, not the living a life of fulfillment apart from relationship to our Creator will be meaningless and empty. So at your next meal, at lunch today, take a second to just enjoy that little bit of meat in your mouth. Hmm, that's good. Thank you, God. Think about how it even got onto your plate. Look at your wife, your kids, your husband, your friend, your wall, if that's all you have. and rejoice that every single good gift comes from above. Try this out. And just know and believe that the more, uh, that more won't make you better or happier. Believe that. Only God can do that. Perhaps you're here today and you don't consider yourself a Christian. And do you think that your life isn't all that useless? It's not so vain what I do. But I want to ask you this. How do you know? How do you know that what you're laboring for isn't vain? What gives you a sense of worth in this life? So that when you're on your deathbed, you can take a deep breath and say, that was worth it. How do you, what gives you a sense of worth? Income? Pleasure? Philanthropy? Family? Whatever it is non-Christian, unbeliever, how do you actually know that it matters? What gives you meaning in life? If some of those questions are kind of lingering in the corners of your mind, or if you'd like to hear a little bit more about how you can know for sure that your life has meaning in this life, even into the next life, both under the sun and over the sun, let's chat afterwards. It'd be a joy and a pleasure to speak with you about that. But this lust for a life other than what God has kindly given to us is not a new problem. It's not new to our generations. This started in the garden, the Garden of Eden. Adam and Eve had it all. This perfect place to live, perfect bodies, a perfect relationship with their creator. But somehow they wanted just a little bit more. And so they took it. And to their own harm, The reality is that we're all going to do this too. We're going to fall prey to the seductions of the world. We're going to get distracted from the permanence of living for things over the sun. Thankfully, on the heels of Adam's poor investment, God whispered into this situation, hope for release from this vicious, discontented cycle that we all face. Satisfy every last need of his people. God meets all of our needs according to his riches in Christ Jesus. God meets all of our needs according to his riches in Christ Jesus. So do you want more from this life? Is your love of money spoiling the God-intended goodness of it? Is your money always running out, leaving you wanting for more? Do you have lots of money, but still want more from life? Come to the unfathomable riches in Jesus. God will supply all of your needs there at the foot of the cross out of the wealth of his son. Come to Jesus, and when you come to Jesus, you'll find that you really can enjoy the life that God gives to you, not the life you wish you had. We you pray with me? God, thanks for a chance to be reminded about what really matters in this life, that we can actually cut grass and not just blow bubbles. We can have a meaningful existence here on this side of death and then on the other side of death. We thank you for that. We pray that we would find our satisfaction in Jesus, that we would remember that Jesus earned your favor for us so that we don't have to earn that for ourselves. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. Amen.